This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm your inner dream monologue and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. Our guest on the program today is Noel Pennington, author of A New History of Medieval Japanese Theater, No and Kyogen from 1300 to 1600. Noel, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me, Andy. Yeah, I really enjoyed your book. As, as I was saying before we uh, started recording, I know next to nothing about this subject, so it was very uh, fascinating to kind of dive in. Oh, well done for looking into it. <laughs> Could you tell us how you first became interested in medieval Japanese theater? Uh, yes. Um, well, uh, I um, happened to be in Japan uh, for my brother's b- uh, birthday a long time ago, back in the 1980s, and uh, was invited to go and see some uh, Noor theatre. And when I went to see it, um, I really wondered what on earth this thing was. Um, there were uh, It's a very strange sight when you go to see Noor, especially in Japan. Um, first of all, I was warned beforehand, um, don't clap uh, at the end of the performance. That's... Uh, um, beneath uh, one's dignity. And so therefore, um, you sit in solemn silence and uh, some very elderly figures uh, come onto the stage with masks and props and so on. And they um, speak in very, very deep, um, throbbing sort of voices, a kind of chanting, and they move very slowly and uh, very little seems to happen on the stage. Um, and then finally, at the end, um, they kind of silently drift off the off the stage, and you're not allowed to clap. And you wonder how how was I supposed to react to that? Looking around at people, I saw people were there were several people were asleep um, at the end, and um, I wondered what on earth you know how what this this thing was. I mean, it seemed less like a dramatic performance and more like an ancient ritual. Um, and so that uh, prompted in me at the time um, this desire to know what on earth was this thing. Um, so that's really where it comes from. Yeah. Um, and so you mentioned the, the performances being these very slow, austere events. I gathered from your book that that's not how they would have been performed in the time that you're studying, 1300 to 1600. Is that correct? Yes, yes that, that, that is right. So um, there's a sort of belief in Japan that uh, 
these traditional arts are, are totally unchanged. And so the general discourse that you hear when you're in Japan is that the amazing thing about noise is exactly the same as it was 600 years ago um, in the, in the late, late uh, 14th and early 15th century when it was developed. So, um, and there is a certain amount of truth to this. Uh, uh, there are elements that are preserved, but as you surely know, um, in performance, uh, what happens is that many aspects of performance can't be recorded um, easily. So the things that can be recorded easily are, are really the, the scripts, the play scripts, uh, the words that are used. But all the rest um, with performance evaporates when the performance is over. And so really it's become more and more apparent uh, that in, in recent years that at least for the first 300 years um, of uh, the development of NOR, um, it, it changed fairly rapidly. And the ways that we can get access to this information, um, and one is by looking at performance records. There are a few performance records that say, you know, at 10 in the morning, we started our performance and we did 10 plays and we finished uh, by early evening. And so we know that the, the speed in particular of performance um, has uh got slower and slower and slower. And, and people have come up with theories why it became slower and slower. And alongside it going slower and slower and slower is a funny thing, really. Um, it seems that voices have got deeper and deeper. I don't know why that is. Um, and so the old idea was that um, back in the 14th century, um, ordinary people were so kind of sophisticated in their aesthetic appreciation, that they could really sit and enjoy a performance that went on for ages and nothing happened and was very, very slow and was extremely subtle. And that's a total contradiction of common sense. I mean, we can't see kind of peasants going to a performance of Nor and sitting through this thing that just sends most people to sleep. And so although it is a wonderful thing, Nor performance today, but it's clearly very different from what they saw, and probably what they saw, well, we've got some records of kind of uh, reactions in the 14th century to performance of plays. People got extraordinarily excited and started jumping around. Um, and there's a very famous scene where they got so excited um, that uh, a whole kind of set of stands in which an audience was sitting uh, collapsed from the people jumping about. Um, and people were so overexcited, they went and started um, grabbing the women who were watching and taking them off and raping them in the bushes and um, grabbing swords from the upper-class samurai and, and laying about them and chopping people's heads off. This was because they were so stimulated by the performance they saw. That would be very unlikely to happen with the performances we see today. Yeah, or or any performance today, for that matter. That's quite an extreme reaction. Yeah, um, th this is interesting because a, a sort of similar thing I, has happened with uh, Shakespeare, though not as extreme. You know, there's lines in Shakespeare plays where people talk about the plays being two hours long, and they're performed now; they're three, three and a half hours long. So, so I wonder if there's a sort of general rule that plays get slower over time. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Probably something to do with the attempt to preserve over generations. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. 
No, no, that's that's great. So you've talked a bit about uh, no theater, but uh, there's also a form called Kyogen. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly that you talk about that is, you know, seemed like sort of a rough equivalent of maybe the the, the Greek satyr plays or something. The kind of short entertainments between the longer, more uh, maybe serious performances. Could you talk a little bit about Kyogen and, and how maybe that's been less well known in the West? Ah, yes, yes. That's that's an interesting question, how well known it's it has been or hasn't been. Yes. Um the origins of Kyogen are um, uh, difficult to place because of um, um, names, naming conventions, so that it only started to be called Kyogen in the, in the 14th century. And um, it's possible that it was called something else before, and so it has a longer history than we know. Um, but in any case, Kyogen... Uh, the great com- contrast that we see between Kyogen plays or skits and no plays is that for a long period of their development, um, they were not scripted, i.e. scripts weren't written down for them. And so there were much more things that were performed uh, in a sort of uh, improvisational way. I think probably... Uh, on the one, you had two actors on the whole, and probably they had a series of techniques for improvisation, and they would take a general uh, kind of story or subject, um, and then they would perform them. So Kyogen today is interesting because uh, it seems to have been much less affected by this uh, retardation over the centuries. And so if you go to Kyogen today, um, you find that they're much easier to understand um, the language is much closer to modern Japanese. Um, and also they're much quicker and livelier. And also they have this co- uh, comic aspect. Of them. They very often have kind of moments when people laugh. And they have a very sort of powerful um, um, kind of feel-good factor to them. Um, and these have become more and more popular in recent times uh, in Japan. And the actors of Kyogen have been less constrained by tradition and so, therefore, you find that there are quite extraordinary Kyogen plays about modern issues like um, uh, nuclear weapons or, or ecological disaster. Um, so, and that yet Kyogen is still one of these arts from the Tokugawa period, that's from the 17th to the 19th century, uh, which uh, were subject to this long period of preservation when. Essentially, Kyogen actors weren't allowed to change their repertoire nor their methods, uh, just as tea ceremony masters weren't supposed to. And in many arts in Japan, this was the case. So that when you see Kyogen, certain kind of characteristics from the uh, this uh, warrior period, the 17th to 19th century, um, are very apparent. One of the aspects of this is that Actors weren't supposed to uh, rely on their own personalities. They were more embodying a tradition. Um, and so rather than have these uh, great actors who, are, who have personalities which the audience recognize and, and expect, actors are very self-effacing. Um, and this has a strange kind of uh, impact on the performance 
uh, we might love to see someone like Laurence Olivier um, with his tremendous kind of personality that comes through all his roles, um, or maybe Kenneth Branagh doing um, Hamlet or something like that. Um, but a great actor really in Japan is someone who sees his life as being to some degree self-effacing and also to some degree um, dedicated to the, to, the, to the audience and putting themselves aside, dedicated to tradition. Um, and this creates this extraordinary kind of uh, pure, ethereal kind of atmosphere. Um, it's as if we're in a kind of um, empty empty world of the mind in which a performance appears before us um, that is simultaneously ancient and also being performed at the moment. Um, so that when we laugh, it's more like a kind of Mozart sense of, sense of, of kind of joy, a sort of a joy is, is at the same time kind of uh, eternal and ethereal. Um, anyway, I'm being a bit impressionistic here. No, that's great. That's great. One of the things you said about Kyogen that I thought was interesting is that there are a lot of contemporary Kyogen plays, which sort of implies that that's not true of of No. <laughs> uh, I, I know of some some examples of of contemporary No plays. I know Yukio Mishima wrote some, but is that is that more the exception than the rule? Is it is it mostly the kind of old repertory that gets or that gets performed? Yes, absolutely right. So. Um, yes, there have been attempts in the 20th century in particular to, to create no plays. Um, and the traditional no uh, acting schools in general don't perform them. Um, mm. So we have this interesting situation of these old schools, which can be traced all the way back uh, to, the, to Zayami who, um, and, and to the kind of... Um, the troops that we know of from Nara in Japan in the, in the, in the 13th century, and their continuous lines. Um, and this gives them tremendous uh, uh, legitimatory uh, uh, characteristics. So, so on the other hand, we have people who, are, who train in Nor. And interestingly enough, most people who, you know, there is this tremendous thing of learning to perform Nor that people love to do in Japan. And many of these people are, I mean, I think the majority are women. So you have this kind of interesting aspect that there are women's troops who perform um, and they're regarded as being um, non-traditional in a sense because because usually the traditional performance are all done by men. And so these people are more experimental and they're more likely to put on... Uh, um, uh, modern plays, yes. Um, another uh, sort of alternative group of performers is actually Western performers. There are a number of modern Western performers, um, and there are particular kind of troops that you can find on the internet if you go on online. And there have been a, many modern Japanese, uh, sorry, modern uh, English language novel plays that have been written and then are performed by modern performers. Um, and uh, these are very interesting uh, to to go and watch, or and and there are films of them you can watch. Yes, this is, so that kind of leads me to a question that's a little bit outside of the purview of your book, but I wonder if you might uh, hazard a, a, an answer anyway. Which is, no theater was very influential in the early twentieth century in Europe. 
uh, thinking about figures like William Butler Yeats, Ezra Pound, Arthur Whaley. These were people who were Western authors who were very interested in no theater. Do you feel like they kind of knew, understood the significance of no theater or was it was it kind of guesswork that got a lot of things wrong? Right. Um, yes, that is an interesting question. Um, I would say that really what happened was that, uh, for example, uh, Ezra Pound and Yeats, to some extent, saw in uh, Japanese poetry and in, in Japanese arts and in Nor something which corresponded to thoughts they were having themselves about the nature of poetry and, and, and performance as they went forward. Um, so I wouldn't characterize it as so much a misunderstanding as they were emphasizing aspects that seemed important to themselves. When we come to Arthur Whaley, we have something a little bit different there because we have a, a, a serious kind of academic um, who really knew his stuff uh, and I think his translations, anyway, are, are pretty reliable. Um, I think he was an extraordinary character who who was able to uh, understand a great deal about Japan without ever having gone there, as far as I understand. Yes. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Could you give us a sense of kind of if you were to go see a Noth play around 1500, what would you see? What would be the costumes, the set, the theater? What what would the audience look like at that time? Right. So, um, yes, the 15th century. So uh, interesting kind of situation. So um, probably uh, we would see certain types of performance. And one kind of performance would be this thing called Kanjin, which was very interesting. Uh, Japan had just got um, um, started to have really a, a cash economy. And so it became possible for ordinary people uh, to, to pay small amounts and yet uh, uh, um, be able to have access to these performances. And so the performances, the performers, sorry, were playing to the crowd um, and you had these huge crowds on the other hand, you had uh, a elite performers, uh, sorry, elite uh, uh, patrons um, who probably had very different tastes. So probably a great variety of, of styles of performance. Um, so one of the things that we know about that we, we um, uh, can't see today is there was a great tradition of uh, De demonic performance and so you'd have these actors that specialized uh, in coming on as kind of demons uh, onto the stage and they were definitely supposed to be as frightening as possible um, and they would kind of they would have uh, uh, masks made for themselves um, and they uh, would uh, do as best as they could to uh, move very violently and and make a sort of violent sounds um, and 
you always had this uh, extraordinary kind of group of percussion players in the background with the with the Nor flute. The Nor flute was made in an extraordinary way. Uh, that meant the overblow was not an octave. Most flutes, if you blow them too hard or record it too hard, you hear a sound which is an octave above um, the note that's normally played. Nor flutes were made in such a way that instead of getting uh, an octave above the sound, you got this very, very shrill um, uh, uh, disharmonic uh, sound, uh, basically a seventh, um, so that... It created this this very kind of scary noise, um, and then you had this kind of thumping uh, uh, drums of various kinds being played, um, and so you could have that kind of performance. On the other hand, um, in the 15th century, uh, when you looked at uh, performances before the shogun, elite performances, and so on, um, there was a kind of move towards. Uh, away from that kind of scary performance uh, towards something that was, that was very elegant, uh, very beautiful, um, that involved uh, beautiful costumes. Um, and we had a period when there were kind of master actors who were uh, stars of the stage. And so these actors would bring into their performances um, uh, tremendous dances uh, and um, uh, lovely songs, uh, probably songs that at that time were not felt to be old-fashioned, uh, but more like um, popular songs of the time, especially uh, warrior songs. Um, so that these actors would come on and do these plays, which probably lasted about 20 minutes or 30 minutes. Um, and they were more like opera, really, opera than, um, than plays, in that uh, dance, costume, uh, music... Uh, singing um, were key parts, and they. One thing we know about performance is that they started slowly, um, and then got quicker and quicker towards a kind of denouement. Very often, the the uh, person we were seeing on the stage, uh, the key main character, would be a a, a sort of um, so, uh, someone who is dead, uh, a ghost who is appearing. Uh, gradually, we, when they first appear, they appear as a living, ordinary person, and then gradually, as night comes on, uh, they would be they would reappear, transformed as who they were in in real life. Now they're in the in the world of the dead, uh, and they would have this extraordinary kind of uh, beauty. But also, they would sing songs that talked about uh, their suffering in the in the afterlife and talked about their tremendous memories of the beautiful lives that they lived. Um, this, this was the sort of scene that we would see. And then these would be interspersed uh, with these comic skits, which really relieved the atmosphere and gave people a chance to laugh uh, before you were plunged into another world of the past. From that description, it really sounds like this was a very poetic and almost philosophic style of theater. Would you say that's accurate? Well, when we look at the plays that are written at that time that survived to the present period, um, what we notice is that they're not really plays that tell stories um, in the way that plays do um, if we go today. If we go today and see a play, uh, we expect to see actors impersonating individuals and then we expect to see them actually enacting stories from the past. 
um, sorry, not from the past, so enacting stories which have already been written, but we're seeing before our eyes being played out. So in Norway, what we see when we look at plays is that they're more in the way of uncoverings of, of, of events and also of uncoverings of psychology. And so um, we'll first of all see someone come on and be uh, in disguise very often. Um, but then gradually what happens is in dialogue with, a, with another character on the stage, um, the psychological roots of the person they are are exposed. Um, and so it's a kind of progressive deepening and investigation of the psychology of individuals. These are particularly the plays that are written in the early 15th century, and it's not the case with plays that were written later, for example, in the 16th century, which are much more um, based on uh, the inaction of, of uh, dramatic events. And so there are really two types of play in the no theatre. Um, so... In a sense, yes, they're, they're more sort of philosophical, the earlier ones, and then the later plays are much more ones which are, uh, if you like, uh, visual extravaganza or, or spectacles um, in which we see great stirring events being, being played out on the stage. Um, and that's another kind of play that we get. Could you tell us a bit about the influence of uh, the different religious traditions of Japan on no theater at this time? I'm thinking particularly of Zen, which I believe took root in Japan around the same time. Is that right? Oh, yes. So um, this is a, there's a sort of um, history of discussion of this issue, issue. And by and large, what people say is that the way in which actors visualize their own um, behavior, their own uh, arts, their own training, was very much influenced by a language related to Zen and to Buddhism. Um, but we see very little sign of uh, Zen in particular in the stories that are being performed. Uh, so that, for example, uh, if we see a play like Sumidagawa, where we see a woman who's had her um, child stolen by slave traders and has been driven mad and is wandering the countryside of Japan searching for her son, um, she then comes to uh, a particular river uh, where there's a ferryman. And as she's crossing the river, all the people on the boat think, oh, there's this lunatic old woman raving away. Um, but she suddenly sees on the other side of the river that a child is being, uh, uh, there's a memorial for a dead child being performed. Now that memorial is um, being carried out using the popular Buddhism of the day, which was Am Amida worship, uh, which consisted, had very little to do with Zen, in the sense that we think of Zen, but was really popular Buddhism, um, trying to aid people in the afterlife to get on to a better future. So in that particular play, she, is, uh, um, she has her um, madness uh, cured, if you like, by seeing the dead spirit of her, her son on the other side of the river, uh, in this memorial service being carried out by local villagers. 
Um, so we see there that uh, the whole Buddhist setting of the play is really not a Zen one. It's nothing to do with meditation. It's nothing to do with the, the ideas that everybody has a Buddha nature or anything like that. It's more to do with popular Buddhism. However, uh, the aesthetic tastes of the people at the time when that play was written, and especially of the shogun, were very much to do with, with uh, Zen. And the shogun at that particular time was actually used to dress up as a Zen monk and um, uh, surround himself with what he felt were Zen-style paintings. And so they liked that sort of aesthetic of Zen, which was a kind of gradually moving towards a kind of minimalism, uh, a kind of, uh, what will we say, symbolism. Um, so we see in the aesthetic uh, of no performance and the ideas of no actors a good deal of influence about Zen. But in the stories of the plays, we find that they're more related to uh, Shintoism, or that is local shrine worship of local gods, um, to do with legends, to do with the, the local gods, uh, and to do with more sort of popular Buddhism about salvation um, and about uh, what happens to you after you die, about your karmic suffering uh, for evil deeds you've committed, that sort of thing. One of the things you write about in the book is how Japan didn't really have much of a theatrical tradition at all prior to this period. Um, China, I think, has a much longer theatrical tradition. Does no reflect at all the influence of of uh, the Chinese theatrical tradition on Japan? Well, that again is a tremendously interesting question. Um, the whole study of no has been uh, at the hands of people really in the twentieth century, and in the twentieth century. Uh, as you probably know, um, the pre-war period, uh, the pre-Second World War period, um, there was a, 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 an intense feeling that um, Japan had its own traditions which were nothing to do with China, and they didn't like the idea that people tried to link these two. Necessarily, I say they, it, of course it depends on the scholar one's got in mind, but there was a general ethos of, of the sort of uniqueness of Japan. Um, so, but if we look at the record, what we find is before Nor, there is no mention at all of um, uh, of uh, um, any kind of uh, theatrical tradition um, that we can see apart from comic comic theatre. There are there are uh, small signs of of comic skits being performed going back quite a long way, um, and there's no. No one's ever found any kind of link between these and Chinese traditions. However, there is the possibility that those Zen priests who came over from China uh, in the 14th century may have brought some knowledge of a of a particular kind of uh, popular uh, Chinese theatre at the time. However, there's no absolutely no uh, record of any kind of influence, and well. Um, in terms of subject matter, one can possibly see a kind of link between 15th century plays uh, and, and plays that were being put on in China. Uh, but if so, it's, uh, there's, no, there's no actual smoking gun, I think we call it. We can't find any evidence uh, providing a link. On the other hand, I think uh, in my book, I've tried to trace ways in which I think that um, 
uh, the normal view, which is that this theatre was created in Japan spontaneously, um, it's a fairly convincing view, uh, one that we can go along with. Um, but it's also a particularly interesting uh, uh, situation because we really don't have a case that I know of um, where we can see a theatre appearing out of, if you like, out of nothing, appearing spontaneously in the world, as definitely in the European tradition and the Indian tradition, which are the only two traditions I really know. Um, uh, wherever there's a theatre, there's also a history of theatre. So it's very interesting, especially as we have an actor, Zayami in particular, who wrote a very detailed description of what he thought theatre was, what he thought performance was, how to write plays and so on. We actually get a, a kind of very rich view of a theatre right at its beginning, which is, is something I think that's uh, unique in, in the world. And that's an incredibly valuable thing to have that I, it strikes me that, you know, I can't think of a, of a similar example of a, of a, a playwright also writing a very detailed and extensive kind of theoretical analysis of theater in the Western tradition until perhaps Goethe or, you know, even, even Brecht. Uh, so let's talk about Zayami a little bit. Uh, he's kind of known as one of the, if not the central figure in the history of No. Um, who was he and what was his significance? Well, um, he was uh, the son of a traditional actor uh, in a troupe that was, uh, in the 14th century, it was generally the rule that um, acting troops or performing troops uh, belonged in some way to uh, temples, to large temple organizations. Uh, temples wouldn't be a building like just a temple, but would be a whole series of kind of um, um, uh, temples and sub-temples and things like that. Um, so he was born into this family of actors, and uh, we know about um, him that at a very early age, he got taken up by a shogun at the time, who is this shogun, uh, Ashikaga Yoshimitsu. Um, and the shogun at that time was not that much older than, than the actor. So we've got this actor who's, who's perhaps 12 years old, and a shogun who's perhaps 18 years old, and they're uh, essentially at opposite ends of the social um, um, hierarchy in that actors were generally regarded as being um, outcasts of some kind. Um, it's a very complicated question, this, about the outcast, but anyway, they they really were um, um, sort of almost sort of, I know this is a sort of loaded word to use, um, but they had a kind of status almost of slaves. I mean, they they... Uh, couldn't resist people above them in any way. And I think if they were killed, nobody nobody would do anything about it or anything like that. On the other hand, the shogun or a young boy um, or, or young man, youth, uh, sees this young boy and, and finds him extraordinarily uh, charming and interesting. This is a boy who there was this kind of tradition of young boy actors and uh, them having um, kind of, to some extent, uh, pederastic, uh, uh, kind of um, patrons, um, especially in the temples, monks weren't supposed to marry. And so you found these relationships developing between beautiful boys and older monks. Um, 
And to some extent, he'd been educated for that. He'd been taught as a young boy to perform, to be cute, to be, to be charming. And he was also, he happened to be uh, very brilliant um, so that he could take part in spontaneous uh, poetry competitions and things like that. And so this beautiful boy was, we don't know exactly how, um, but probably because his father was performing on a certain occasion, was taken up by this uh, young shogun who was brought up to have absolute autocratic power. Uh, nobody would ever cross him. And so he brought uh, Zemi uh, into his uh, life and he would have Zemi sit beside him on a kind of couch when they watched performances um, and he would have him share his plate, which was apparently a great thing, and share his drinks. And all the samurai of the time who were desperate to kind of uh, ingratiate themselves with the shoguns would go and um, um, give presents to this young boy and compliment him, say how pretty he was, uh, uh, so that they would win the favor of the shogun. This was actually a kind of traditional practice. It was Zayami was by no means was the only person who did this. Uh, there were a number of boys in this situation. Anyway, then, uh, as a result of his connections with, with uh, uh, this uh, upper class, Zayami clearly uh, had access to, to uh, elite uh, knowledge. And in particular, he learned to read and write. Um, and he had access to the literary tradition and the religious traditions of the day. And so through this kind of access, he kind of fades from the scene when he's about 17. Um, and we see him going back uh, to his, his temple where he continues with his uh, normal performances and, and has a, a troupe of actors that he works with. Um, and then later what we see is this tremendous figure appearing as a, as a playwright, um, writing plays that uh, other troops who are very popular troops are taking up and performing, it seems. Um, and he also trained his, his children uh, and, and various relatives uh, in the art of performance and, and started writing these, these theoretical works. So Zayami was both a playwright and a performer. Was that sort of the norm in no theater? Yeah, well, there, again, tremendously interesting question. It was believed at the end of the 19th <laughs> century that um, the plays were all written by priests and that the actors were these inferior working class, I mean, lower class, much lower than working class, unemployed class of people whose job was 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 to put these plays on. Um, that was the general belief. And then Zayami's writings were discovered. And when they were discovered, uh, these had been kept secret within families. But because no performers and um, in the in the late 19th century were lost their stipends from the government and were basically thrown onto the streets. They started selling these these uh, uh, documents that they'd kept for centuries and centuries. And so suddenly there was access to all this information, not only Zami but a lot of other information um, by that were held in performing troops um, archives. You know, within these families. And suddenly it became apparent that a whole lot of plays were actually written by actors. And then there was this tremendous move to say, well, actually, these actors were incredibly interesting intellectual characters um, who wrote all these plays. But there is evidence that, in fact, there were plays being written by 
priests and intellectuals. Um, and so how much uh, the tradition of actors writing plays goes back earlier is open to doubt. And in particular, one thing that we know is we have no writings by actors before Zami. There are even his father, there are no writings. Well, as performers are notorious for having not only performers, but Japanese in general, for keeping records of older writings, um, it seems likely that performers before that were illiterate, um, and so that this is all to do with a kind of transformation of the tradition by the shift to literacy among actors. Sorry, I'm probably wandering mm. off into subjects of my no, own interest. No, no, that's great. Mm. Um, so one of the things that we get from Zayami's writing is some sense of how his generation departed in in some ways from the older generation, including his own father. So how did the how did Zayami's plays and the plays of his generation differ from the early the earlier no plays? Well, um, most of the plays we know have passed down through families connected to Zayamis, so that we always have to bear in mind that there were a lot of plays being performed in Zayamis' time that were, were possibly very different from Zayamis' own um, uh, tradition of writing. But Zayami himself talked about this, uh, the new style and the old style. And... Um, it it's counterintuitive. It goes in an opposite direction from one that we might think of looking at our own, um, that is, our own Western uh, theatrical tradition. What we seem to have is a move from plays which were dramatic, which involved large numbers of actors on the stage at the same time, which involved, in particular, multiple voices. Um, you know, for us... Uh, in theatre, what we really enjoy to see is two people with a very contrary point of view of the world um, having dialogue, having discussion. And in that discussion, we see exposed what are the roots of the differences of the ways that they view the world. This is really a sort of central aspect of, of, of modern Western theatre. Um, and it seems that this kind of thing was prominent in the old theatre style, the theatre style of, of, of Zayami's father. But what we see in Zayami's time is a shift towards uh, more a mono-vocal uh, kind of um, theatre, a theatre in which essentially we're exploring one individual's experience and one individual's psychology, um, so that there are minor figures there um, who represent kind of, it's difficult to say, but bland sort of differing voices. One would be uh, largely a kind of detached Buddhist voice, the voice often of a, of a priest or of a, um, an intellectual man from the upper classes. Then we have uh, the Kyogen actor who appears in Noel plays, who often represents a kind of lower class, slightly sarcastic um, mocking kind of voice. Um, but they're very much minor characters and set against them we have the one voice of the main actor, um, which may sometimes be a pair of actors, uh, but generally they don't differ in their, in their... I'm using voice in this sense of a kind of situated view of the world mm -hmm. expressed in language. 
um, which is common to you know from Bakhtin and people like that. So there's a shift away from what we might call the theatrical uh, to to this kind of uh, one-voiced um, um, monolithic uh, kind of play, um, which is which is Amy Star. So that's one big change. We see the reduction in the number of performers, the reduction in the number of voices, and we also see. Um, so instead of having, say, uh, several scenes situated in different places coming on, um, several acts, what we actually tend to see is uh, two acts, two act plays, and those acts are in the same place, basically in daytime and in nighttime. Um, so it's a kind of shrinking down um, um, of the play tradition in Zayami's time. But on the other hand, what we see is a tremendous kind of um, use of poetic tradition and song traditions uh, to explore in great depth um, the the consciousness of of individuals. Um, And that is really the great achievement of the null play in this period. Would a playwright like Zayami have also composed the music for his plays? Absolutely. So this is the thing that we see really going back, is that it's fairly clear from what Zami wrote that you would have a playwright that wrote a play and then the actors would take that play and uh, put, set it to music, uh, set it to dance. Um, they, would, they would sort of insert dances within it. Um, and uh, they would also sometimes adjust the words um, to, for, for various reasons so that it seems that always the kind of musical aspect was something that depended on the actors, uh, whoever the, the playwright was. Um, and it's quite an interesting thing. They have there's arguments that appear in Zayami's writing where he says, well, this act is no good because he doesn't understand that this kind of uh, song style um, should go up at the end and not down at the end, that sort of thing. That's quite detailed. I mean, we don't have anything like that for uh, for contemporary theater in, um, in 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 Europe. That kind of detailed description of you know this particular actor isn't isn't very good. Yeah, yeah. So that, I mean, that is fascinating about Zami because he's got a strong point of view about what acting should be, but we're able to see. That's what I tried to, in a sense, to bring out in this book. Um, we're able to see through him the voices of people that he disagreed with. Of course, we can't take what he says, um, as people have done. Um, I think it's unwise to take it as face value. Um, but at the same time, we do see these glimpses of all these other kind of traditions that are there that are very interesting. Well, Noel Pennington, I've taken so much of your time, and I, I just want to thank you so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts to talk about your book. I, I really enjoyed the book, and I really enjoyed our discussion. Well, thank you so much for uh, inviting me uh, uh, in this way. Uh, It's been a great pleasure.